And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I met Dennis McDonough almost 10 years ago uh, during the Barack Obama campaign when he uh, came on board as uh, a foreign policy advisor uh, to Senator Obama. Uh, And he has been with him ever since, first as deputy national security advisor uh, in the first term and then as chief of staff for the last four years uh, of the Obama presidency. Dennis has been involved in all the major decisions of the administration for the last four years. And now, as the days wind down on the Obama administration, we sat down to talk about the journey he's taken. Dennis McDonough, my old friend, thank you uh, for being here in a momentous time in your life and the life of the country. Um... You know, I ran into your brother, Kevin, in Chicago one day, uh, and uh, we were talking about you, and he, and he said, yeah, dude is really, uh, and then I forget what the rest of the sentence was, but I'm interested in the dude thing, yeah. and your family, which is enough for its own football team, yeah. 11 kids yeah. back in Minnesota, yeah. but how the dude thing happened? Well, so uh, my second oldest brother, Billy, um, when I was born, really liked uh, the cartoon Dudley Do-Right. And so he called me Dudley Do-Right when I was first born. But that quickly turned into Dude. And what's interesting around here is the only people who call me Dude are people from who I know from Minnesota. So it's a quick giveaway, both because of the way Minnesotans say Dude, uh, but also just the fact of saying dude what was that like with 11 11 kids man that's that's a handful right there it's hard to know what it was like all i know is what i know right i mean it's hard to know what something else was what was different about it what i tell people though x is i think it's part of the critical training for some of the jobs that we do here you know you're trying to build consensus all the time you're trying to direct people to go different places uh you know inevitably there's not enough to go around so you got to split it up um or there's too much to go around so everybody has to put a little bit more of the shoulder into the thing and so i tell people that i think had i not grown up the way i did fighting like hell sometimes with my brothers and sisters but also um you know in infused in us an absolute commitment from my mom and dad that there's one thing you don't do and that's turn on your brothers and sisters and and um so that's been great training i think that was great training for this crazy job that i do now needless to say perhaps you come from a catholic family yes uh tell me about your mom and dad so my mom and dad are both from boston my dad is from arlington and my mom is from bill and they met and married in boston and my dad was working in, uh, was worked for his whole life for one company, 3M. He started in the mailroom in college. He went to BC. And they, he got a promotion, and they got uh, transferred to Minnesota. So six of my brothers and sisters were born in Boston, in Dorchester, um, and, um, or Weymouth, in between those two towns. 
and then the rest of us were born in Minnesota. But, you know, the one thing, I, a story I like to tell about my mom is I asked her why we ended up living where we lived. Lived in this old, big old house. At the time, they just rented out the bottom of a duplex. Uh, they ended up buying the whole thing and made it into one house when, I think, when my dad got a little bit more money. Um, but my mom's requirement for a house was that it be close to the church and close to the school. And, you know, my mom used to go to daily mass every night around supper. Um, she'd get supper going, and then she'd disappear for mass, and then she'd come home, and, you know, my older brothers and sisters would have us ready to go. But so it was a big part of, the church was a big part of who my mom and dad uh, were and who they raised us to be, um, and frankly continues to be that way. To you have day. a couple of brothers who are in the clergy. Yeah. So my brother Kev, uh, whom you mentioned, is still a priest in St. Paul. My brother Billy was a priest until about, um, I guess it's almost 20 years ago now. Uh, and he's no longer a priest, but he's a theologian, a professor at a college in St. Paul. And, um, you know, it's funny because every once in a while I get some gruff around here. i got to watch my language on this, but I get some gruff around here. It's a podcast. You don't have to watch your language. <laughs> and you're going out of office, so you can say anything you want. <laughs> uh, that, uh, you know, that guess somebody calls me a monk or something. I, you know, I the pressure on me was the other way because my mom basically... Here she was. I was the ninth of 11. She already had two clergy, and she wanted a lot more grandkids. So she's like, I don't need any more clergymen. I need some more. I need some grandkids. And you gave her three yes. splendid grandkids. Oh, and they're the best. So you became um, interested in, 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 in Spanish. You followed yeah. one of your brothers down yeah. that road. Why? Yeah. So I went to my brother Kev. Uh, he, I remember I was in 7th uh, or maybe 8th grade when he was assigned to a parish on the west side of St. Paul, Our Lady of Guadalupe. And we went there, and it was Spanish Mass. And, uh, you know, I didn't really understand what anybody was saying, to include him when he gave his homily, but he gave his whole homily in Spanish. And I thought to myself, hey, this is pretty cool, and hey, if he can do it, I know I can do it, and I might even want to try to do it better. Um, and so that kind of um, intrigued me. And so uh, throughout high school, obviously, I did the obligatory Spanish language uh, classes. But then in college, I had a couple of cool experiences. I worked for a period on the border uh, between semesters as a sophomore uh, down in El Paso and uh, Juarez, which is a really amazing uh, uh, still on your docket, probably. Huh? Yeah, still very much still on our docket. Um, and I just got more and more interested in Latin America, and that was my first job on the Hill then. I studied it in school, and then that was my first job on the Hill to be the Latin America guy for the Democrats and the Foreign Affairs I, Committee. I want to I wanna ask about that. Before I do, though, there are many ways in which people interpret the gospel and interpret their uh, mandate mandates under it. What did you take away from it? How does it infuse what you do and your commitment to the things that you've done? That's a good question. I mean, I I think there's three ways. I think, you know, the first two are standard, which is um, the Gospels tell you that the 
basically the Savior was made in the image of God, uh, as all men and women are made in the image of God. And, and when uh, you so believe, you are then thereby so required to treat each person with the respect and the dignity that comes from the, uh, their being so created. Uh, the second is just the Beatitudes, you know. That's, that's great stuff, you know. And it's hard to imagine a, a kind of a, a more worthwhile way to direct one's uh, life, you know, is to see uh, in that neighbor not only dignity uh, that comes from being made in the image of God, but uh, to see yourself and to hope that you be similar, that when someone see, sees you, you would, they would treat you with uh, respect and care. And then the third is, I think the Gospels is a story of somebody, as a group of people, and, and obviously uh, Jesus himself, constantly trying to figure out what they're called to do and constantly try to make themselves better. Which, if you look at it one way, is to say that you've got to constantly strive uh, for greater excellence. If you look at it another way, you're saying that in the first instance you're unworthy. And so that you really got to work uh, for your salvation. And so um, it depends on the day, but sometimes I see it the first and sometimes I see it the, the second. But in all cases, it's a good way to try to remind yourself what we're supposed to be doing here. And look, I think the person who I hear this, the, these kind of words from the most um, is the president. He talks a lot about dignity. He talks a lot about people being made in the image of God. He talks a lot about... Um, the need to treat each person with that respect that uh, yeah, that, that put demands. yourself in the other person. Put yourself shoes. in the other you person's hear that shoes. A lot. It's funny because you know he wasn't really he he always says he was raised in a spiritual tradition, but not in a religious tradition. And he really adopted yeah. his sort of faith home when he was uh, when he was older in life in Chicago. Uh, but uh, but he is very spiritual. Look, I say to him. Acts, and I think I've said this to him in your presence, and I've said this publicly before, I think this is the, uh, our most Catholic of presidents, and I mean that by capital C Catholic, in what I see and what he does every day. No, it's not to say that he um, does everything entirely consistent with Catholic teaching. That's not the idea. But I think, in fact, his view of the person and his view of our role um, and the view of... Uh, us as um, adding to the common good, I think, is an undeniably Catholic set of premises, and, and uh, that's why I say that to him a lot. I think you and I were together on a trip to Rome uh, when we went to the Vatican, and we met, met the last pope. Yeah. Have you met this pope? I haven't. I, I really wish. I, I really hope to one day. Mm-hmm. He obviously came on a terrific visit um, last September which was one of the most memorable things. Um, and I remember being there uh, and sitting with our kids, and, um, and our kids were really into it. <laughs> and, uh, and I think part of, uh, part of that stems from the fact that it was the Pope, but a lot of it stems from the fact that it was this Pope, somebody who really speaks to kids, who really speaks to youthful and joyful 
a practice. Does of he one's speak faith. to you? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I hope I, I hear it. You know, I hope I'm living up to it. But uh, I mean, I ask that for the yeah. obvious reason. I mean, yeah. he's brought a different sensibility uh, that's very much a Jesuit kind of sensibility yeah. to this. Um, well, ironically, focus you know, on, I'm, the, I'm, on the poor yeah. and. Ironically, you know, I was trained mostly by the Benedictines. St. John's, where I went to college, is the biggest Benedictine monastery in the world. Um, and you're right that um, the Holy Father does have a uh, does um, demonstrate in a lot of ways the great tradition of the Jesuits. But in so many ways, I think he just he he demonstrates. He's got an unbelievable smile. You know, it was great to watch the president and he joking and smiling and laughing on the on the stage that day. And I think the joyfulness that he demonstrates speaks to the kind of leadership um, and practice that he, that he leads uh, um, the church through now. And, and this is not some kind of dirge, you know. Life is to be joy, and, and he demonstrates that. You know, um, it's interesting to me just watching. For, first of all, I think the Pope's uh, place in the world is such that whether you're Catholic or not, what a pope says and does has meaning because of the leadership role yeah. uh, that he plays. But you know, observing from the outside, the challenge probably to all faiths, but to Catholicism, is uh, the sense of relevance it projects to uh, young people in, a, in 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 modern times and contemporary times. Um, and he seems to have a genius for. Uh, communication, this man who's almost 80, maybe he is by now, uh, to reach, to, uh, he seems like the best hope to sort of renew interest in the, in the church. He, he does, and, and I think that part of that is what I was saying, is that he looks so joyful as he's practicing his faith and as he's leading uh, this great institution. And, and look, I mean, I think the a leader who demonstrates that kind of joy and, and his avocation is a powerful thing. He's also spoken to some things that previous popes have not been willing to speak to about yeah. homosexuality, yeah. And, um, uh, abortion, yeah. uh, which he said was, while still a sin. Yeah. The family, marriage. Right. You know, I think he's uh, climate change in a very, very powerful way. And... Um, he, in a, in a lot of ways, he's speaking to, uh, to, it seems to me, speaking to Catholics, but also to non-Catholics, uh, where they are, rather than uh, where uh, they should be dictated. Which is sort of the essence of connection, yeah. whether you're, what, whatever leadership position you hold, you kind of have to meet people where, uh, where they where they live. Um, you've been, uh, you mentioned that you went to the Hill, you went to, yeah. to uh, school, you got your master's degree out here in Washington. Yeah. You went to uh, the Hill after you graduated and worked on, on uh, Latin American issues. Do you think uh, from the perch that you're in, and before you had this job as White House Chief of Staff, you were the Deputy National Security yeah. Advisor. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, do you think Latin America has gotten the attention, not just from your administration, but it feels as if because of all of the pressing things that are going on in the Middle East, the challenges from Asia, Latin America has has been less of a focus than it was 
say when I was a kid in the '60s yeah. and under President Kennedy and yeah. the Alliance for Progress. Yeah. So I want to tell you a quick story though before I answer that question, which is that um, when I first got that job, I I was an intern. Um, on that committee and the guy I was interning for. Is that House Foreign Relations Committee? Yeah. yeah. And the guy I was interning for, Dan Restrepo, ended up coming back to work here. Yes. He was leaving to go to graduate school. <clears throat> and so I applied for the job, and I was also dating Kari at the time, um, and I didn't have any money, so I needed a paying job. And so I got called in by the chief of staff, and he said, um, I got good news and bad news. And I said, okay, well, why don't you give me the bad news first? And he says, well, the bad news is that we've offered the job to somebody else. I said, well, that's bad news. What could possibly be the good news? And he said, well, the good news for you is he turned it down so you can have it if you want it. And I thought, hmm, that's an unusual way to start <laughs> one's career. It wasn't, uh, wasn't a hard pitch at No, it wasn't, wasn't a hard pitch, but look, I was falling in love with uh, this terrific woman, and I needed some money, Yeah, and I was intrigued by the job, so I did it. Um, but look, I, 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 in some ways I see it a little bit differently, which is that the American people exercise uh, American soft power throughout Latin America uh, every day of our lives in a way that you don't see necessarily even in a lot of other regions of the world. The amount of trade, the amount of travel, the amount of uh, language, books, music, traditions that we both influence in the region and that the region influences with us, food, customs, traditions, speaks of a degree of... Well, and and we should point out immigration and the... And immigration of people from Latin yeah. America in this country. Exactly. Um, much the way, you know, we don't, we don't spend a lot of time in meetings in the Situation Room on Ireland, right? But the relations between the United States and Ireland could not be more solid. And that's based on a lot of shared traditions, a lot of shared interests, a lot of shared goals and objectives, but also uh, shared people. And I think we see that more and more as it relates to Latin America. So um, a policy that seeks to um, make sure that the government supports that and doesn't stand in the way of that, um, I think is going to be one that advances our interests in the region in such a way that, especially as we consider things like um, China just by necessity needing to find more and more natural resource um, is going to be a bigger global player as we go forward. And they're and making a big play. In, they're, they're making, making a big, big play in, in places in, in, like the Panama right. Canal and, mm-hmm. in, the, and uh, in South America as they look for uh, additional resources. I think if we have a set of policies, a set of policies and a set of policy objectives that uh, maximize the ways for uh, the American people uh, and our partners, neighbors in Latin America can interact, invest, trade, travel. We're going we're gonna to win that competition with a country like China every day. And so you're right that it's, it's not like the days of the Alliance for Progress. It's not like the days of the kind of very ideological fights about the Sandinistas. Communism. Uh, yeah, communism and what's happening in Salvador with the, the Salvador... Um, uh, Civil War or Guatemala, it it's different. It's more mature. 
Um, and as a result, you see us partnering with the Santos government um, as they make very in Colombia in Colombia and making critical decisions about its peace plan. Is that plan uh, in any way? Uh, now I know they approved it, so it is law now uh, in Colombia. Do these things uh, are they to likely to be affected by changes of administra- American administration? Well, because I'm not sure where a Trump administration is going to stand on the Colombia peace accord? It's a good question. I don't know where they'll stand either, but I do know that the deal itself was cut uh, by the Colombians um, Mm -hmm. and pursuant to agreements that they've made and uh, not reliant on at all uh, U.S. support, but surely taking into consideration the historic uh, support that I think they felt provided. encouragement to come to some. They felt support. encouragement of it, and and frankly, our support for Colombia, including for the Colombian Armed Forces, has been important in terms of strengthening the state. And mm-hmm. and I think um, it would be a mis- it would be important to continue that kind of posture. So you went to work uh, ultimately with Tom Daschle. I did, yeah. Uh, who was then the majority leader of the Senate? Yeah. Um, Along the way, you became interested in climate change. Yeah. Was that during that period of time? It was. You know, what happened is uh, Kari and I got married. I got the job. I got some money. And uh, she said she would um, marry me. So we, we got married, and rather than stay she didn't in— check the, She didn't check your bank account, she? Did didn't. She, she yeah. didn't. Um, we I try to keep that highly encrypted. <laughs> uh, she— but we went, uh, we, rather than stay in Washington and spend our first year of marriage in our offices, we went to Germany for a year on a fellowship. And that was where, among other things, we really started to look at innovative. You know, the Greens were very ascendant at the time. You remember Jaska yeah. Fischer and um, really was one of the more innovative parties in the German Greens in Europe at the time. And I couldn't help but be interested in it. I wasn't particularly uh, necessarily supportive of the Greens, but I was intrigued by the way they are seeking innovation um, in uh, green energy and focusing on climate. And and so there's no doubt that that period really kicked it off for me. And then it continued with Dashiell, who spent a lot of time and continues to this day focused on uh, low-carbon energy um, and innovation and jobs in, in that space. Um, and then the last thing, and this is something I talk with the president a lot about, and I know you do too, Ax, is um, when you have kids, uh, or in your case, grandkids. Yes, you don't have to put uh, it in there. You, I think it's a great thing. No, I'm, not, look, I, I, I'm joking. Not judging, I, man. The greatest, the greatest thing ever. Highly recommended. I'm sure you'll get there, uh, but, probably, but hopefully God not willing. too soon. God uh, willing. Yes. But when you have kids and you start to think about the world that they'll face. Yes. You know, if all of a sudden they're going to go back to questions of water scarcity and uh, the kind of tumultuous weather patterns that we that are becoming more and more prevalent, um, those boy, I, you can't help but want to do everything we can right now because you don't want to go look look in the eyes of your kids and grandkids in twenty, thirty, forty years and have them ask, "Did you do everything you could to stop this?" Madness? I'm. Uh it's funny you should say that because I was on a show the day of one of the president's State of the Union speeches uh, a few years ago, and uh, I was asked why he was emphasizing climate change because this, I was on, uh, I think this was my, my buddy Joe Scarborough asked me, why, why is he emphasizing this? 
because it's number six, only the number six on the list of concerns in the Wall Street Journal NBC poll. And I thought to myself, gee, I just had this beautiful granddaughter who, God willing, will be alive at the end of this century. And I'm thinking, am I supposed to say to her from the grave if the planet is completely degraded, as scientists suggest it will be, if we don't act? Am I supposed to say, well, we would have done something, but the NBC Wall Street Journal poll wasn't good enough? That seems like a pretty flimsy uh, answer. That's for sure. But uh, my question to you on this is, um, and this, you know, I'm watching with interest, and I'm not trying to draw you into a debate with the next administration, but um, a lot of the appointees that we've seen so far, both in the transition and, and some of those talked about for jobs in the government, are not what you would call climate change Campaigners. In fact, mm-hmm. his transition person on the EPA is the is a very prominent climate change uh, denier. Um, how much how much can be undone of what the president has done? The Paris Accord. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are regulations through the EPA, uh, fuel efficiency standards, and so on. How how jeopardized? are aggressive actions on climate change by change uh, by a change of administration here? Well, so I think um, I th- I'd say a couple things about this. One is, depending on who the – set aside the personnel question for a second because, as the president said, I think in his press conference down in Peru uh, 10 days ago or so, X, when you sit in that office, and you know this, uh, reality and demands have a way of creeping up on you. And – that requires some very hard uh, science-based, reality-based decision-making. And I have every um, confidence that that will continue to be the case when, when we're gone, irrespective of, um, you know, the, the views that you bring into the office. I think you've you got to take a look. When, when the stakes are as high as they are, you've got to take a look at every available option. Second, you, you are a man of faith. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. <laughs> Wait, before you go on, let me yeah. just uh, – I. I I, I got engrossed in this conversation, yes. and I have to do a little bit of business here, Good. so we're going to take a Please. short break for a word from our sponsor. Please. We're back with Dennis McDonough, and I should uh, note that we're recording in the uh, uh, old executive office building across the street from uh, the White House, and if you hear some uh, noise in the background, it's, uh, it is... Progress. The, progress being made in the room next door or else an early holiday party one or the other back to climate change so back to climate the 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 second thing i'd say is i think for the last uh several years in particular uh some of our critics um have been making a what i would consider an ahistoric criticism uh, an afactual criticism criticism of the president when he would exercise uh authorities Uh, executive authorities that every president, as far back as I've read, uh, has used to make policy in this this, um, country. And what they did is they overstated the extent to which the president used that authority or the differences that the president, uh, the different ways the president used it as compared to other presidents. And in so doing, have convinced themselves that it's just a stroke of the pen that can then also, they hope, I think, be very easily erased and undone. When in fact, uh, the things that we did, uh, the, uh, power, the Clean Power Plan, for example, were all subject to rulemaking, uh, public notice and comment, 
uh, to considerable litigation uh, from and some opponents. of it has been held up. Some of it has been, um, you know, and, and uh, also unusual ways uh, has uh, been uh, winning hands for them at the moment, anyway. And so, can it be easily undone? No, it can't. In fact, what has to happen now is it to pull it back. They have to go through all those same intensive steps, also subject to litigation as to whether they can take off the kinds of common sense regulations and rules that we've put in place. Third point I'll make on this, which is the market has a say. And I don't want to sound like the Republican here uh, explain to the man. incoming you're, Republican you're, you're, administration. You're, you're the chief of staff of the, for the entire country. There you go. The, but the, there has been an overwhelming turn towards uh, electricity generation through natural gas use Mm -hmm. because of the revolution in uh, natural gas um, production here in this country and the coincident significant drop in cost. So as electricity generators um, have uh, sought the best, cheapest, and ultimately cleanest set of options, they've gone with gas overwhelmingly, and even increasingly now wind, solar. Yeah, well, this, is a, this, was, this I think will be a legacy of the Obama administration, is that the, the seeds were planted for a renewable energy industry, I and now so, you actually. see the wind and you see the cost of wind and solar coming way down. The cost of wind and solar right now, in, a remark- in what is a stunning... Um, uh, development, and I'd be happy to make this chart available to you. Is a chart that was briefed to us in the morning meeting on just last Wednesday. Hard to display on a podcast, but that's why I wanted to make it available to you for, <laughs> in other ways. Uh, shows right now, not only is gas uh, very competitive vis-a-vis coal, but wind and solar right. are competitive with both gas and coal. It's interesting, though. You know, um, we just had an election in which part of the issue was um, in these towns that had been coal mining yeah. areas, as well as places where steel and others, uh, other heavy manufacturing has disappeared. There's, there's a sense of, um, of alienation, of, yeah. of, of loss, and concern that uh, folks didn't feel was addressed. The hardest thing, it seems to me, about the climate change issue is that posited against the economic concerns that people have, you're taking a long-term concern that is real but not necessarily visible every day with the day-to-day concerns that people have to pay their bills and to get ahead. And uh, the opponents of uh, climate change have really, uh, I think, mined and surfed that sense of anxiety in a way that uh, we still haven't overcome. You know, um, and have done so in some ways in a very cynical way, which is to say that you have companies that are making decisions based on cost. As I just said and as we just discussed, uh, gas is much cheaper, much more competitive uh, at the moment than coal. And... uh, those are those are economic decisions that not, not climate change decisions that that companies have made right and then they somehow notwithstanding having made those decisions then blame those decisions on others um, and I think is a cynical in a cynical way and you know I went up to I went up to um, the Iron Range about a year ago in Minnesota in Minnesota 
Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah. Minnesota, like you said. Yeah. yeah, that's good. That's a long O. <laughs> yeah, don't you know? Um, and I'll tell you, steel was in a bad spot. Global, a big lot of global steel. Um, uh, due in many uh, respects to you know a number of things, but including dumping from some of our biggest, um, some of the biggest countries in the system, like China. But I'll tell you what, what we saw up there was communities working together with unions, with companies, uh, uh, to provide the kind of information that allowed the U.S. government to make some decisions about uh, what was happening in the global marketplace, what were anti-competitive practices from some of our uh, trading partners. Uh, and now you see now that kind of collaborative work uh, leading to, I think, a series of trade enforcement actions from the, from the U.S. government, from this administration, uh, that has meant that uh, you're seeing steel come back. Uh, and it's that kind of collaboration, that kind of work together, that kind of investment in the common good in these communities that uh, leads to um, opportunity and jobs. Uh, there's different ways that it's been handled by other con- uh, other companies, I believe, in the in the coal space, which I, I find less uh, ultimately. Um, but on the on the positive uh, on the climate change issue, um, you know, you see these reports from our. You worked in the national security yeah. area, and it's a real national security concern. I mean, some of the most rabid uh, advocates for climate change action are. Our generals and yeah. admirals and yeah. uh, well, you've seen it from our intelligence community. You've seen it from the Department of Defense. Just in the last several years, as we uh, make our own plans uh, for, we, we don't make investments in the defense space or in the intelligence space for next week or next month or even next year. We make it for the next decade or the next couple of decades, and we look at the kind of material we're going to need, the kind of uh, firepower we're going to need, the kind of basing that we're going to need and the places we're going to need them, uh, or bases that we have now that in the context of a dramatically warmer climate and higher seas, bases that won't be, uh, that will be vulnerable, uh, not just to higher water, but also to dramatically uh, more tumultuous weather. So, Which leads to tumultuous politics. Tumultuous politics, to instability. A perfect example of that is that um, there's been a lot of interesting work about the start of the Syria conflict, which is obviously something that we've spent a lot of time thinking about here. And that the initial instability was informed uh, in, a large, in large measure by a terrible famine in Syria that led to uh, pretty dramatic instability and led to a lot of the early protests against uh, the Assad regime. I'm not in any way here trying to uh, suggest that the Assad regime itself is not responsible for this but gruesome the, instability. Yeah, but, but some of these but one of the deprivations that, that were resulting from exactly. uh, climate change were a cause. You know, I, I want to talk about Syria, but uh, I'm interested in one thing in your history, yeah. which is that you were involved in, uh, and I know it, you, you've had a lot of second thoughts. Yeah. But you were involved when you were in the Senate in helping to draft the Iraq War Authorization. Take us back to that moment when you were working for Tom Daschle and and what you were thinking then and what you think now about that. 
So I, I, I put the the nine eleven resolution and the Iraq resolution together for the following reason, uh, which is why I want to talk about the nine eleven resolution for just a minute. On the night of September tenth, uh, which would have been a Tuesday, two thousand and one, two thousand and one would have been a Tuesday night. We began to have conversations with the Bush administration about an authorization, whether they would need an authorization to use military force against those forces that carried out the act, al-Qaeda, that carried out the uh, heinous attacks on 9-11. Those conversations broke into uh, negotiations in earnest on Wednesday, continued Wednesday. So this is actually 2002. I said 2001. No, this is 2001. This is 2001, okay. right after the attacks on oh, 9-11, okay. 2001. So we, we have a negotiation, and because of the, the circumstances surrounding it, it was a relatively small group of people involved in these negotiations. The leaders, the four leaders staff, Mr. Gephardt, uh, Speaker Hastert, uh, uh, Leader Lott and Leader Daschle, and uh, our people, their people, and the White House. So it was a handful of maybe six or eight or ten people. And you think to yourself, why is six or eight or ten people writing, negotiating and writing such a consequential document? Shouldn't that have been done in open hearing, in markups, uh, with full legislative history? And the answer is, well, it was a very difficult time. We still didn't know whether there was pending attacks, but we did think it was important to send a very strong signal quickly uh, about the resolve of the country. So the result was by Friday morning, we had uh, finalized uh, then among the four leaders and the president a resolution that was voted on in the Senate on Friday morning, passed 100 to 0, and in the, in the House on Monday, uh, Friday afternoon. Now this is all September 14th by then. Um, uh, 434 to 1, one objection in the House. So this passes overwhelmingly. So fast forward now, and that becomes the basis for the action in Afghanistan. And we continue to use it today as we just publicized yesterday in a very comprehensive and uh, unprecedented report about our legal basis for actions around the world against terrorists. We continue to rely on that piece of legislation until this day. Should you, by the way? I mean, should there not? Well, we asked Congress to give us a a new piece of legislation about two years ago. Um, And despite asking for it, uh, they have not acted on Mm. it, which is similar, obviously, to the serious situation, which I'm sure we'll discuss. So fast forward, Dan acts about, um, I don't know, six or eight months when you're into the spring of 2002. Um, We began, uh, there began to be hearings then in the um, Senate and the House about Iraq. And in the summer of 2002 then, um, uh, the Bush administration started to make a very concerted case late in the summer, early in spring, in the fall. You'll recall that they talked about not, you never want to roll out a new policy in the August recess, you, you know. Um, so in the fall of 2002, there's pretty big uh, national debate and Congress wanted to be heard on the question. And we began again to negotiate that resolution in that small group of people. To authorize. To authorize use, use of force against, in this case, Iraq. Iraq. No. Which I believe now was a fundamental mistake. It was probably a mistake to do the negotiations after 9-11 in such a small group, but there's no doubt that it was a mistake to do the negotiations in that 
in Iraq in the fall of 2002 in such a small group. And so ultimately, obviously, there was a couple of hearings, a couple of markups, and then it was passed overwhelmingly in both chambers that fall. And then in the spring of 2003, obviously, the conflict in Iraq started based, again, uh, on that authorization to use military force against Iraq. In retrospect, I think it should have been that we insisted on doing those things much more publicly, uh, public hearings, full legislative history, markups, uh, debates, because it would have informed the, it would have been done a better job of informing the American public of the cost of the operation. But pro- and I appreciate the point, but process notwithstanding, uh, how, how do you look back at the decision to go to war in Iraq, and and when did you begin to when did you begin to doubt the wisdom of that decision? Well. Uh, how consequential was yeah, it? Yeah, so I take the point on process notwithstanding, but I guess in this case what I'm saying is by virtue of the way the process was carried out, I think we didn't do as good a job of having a national debate informed by the, that informed. Do you think if we did, we wouldn't have gone? I, I think if we did, we would have thought a lot harder about some of the big consequences that we began to face early mm-hmm. in that fall, in that spring after the invasion. Mm-hmm. Recall that we passed an, uh, an emergency appropriation for some, I think, 80-plus 80 billion, billion yeah. dollars for the reconstruction of Iraq. That's an astounding number. That's an astounding number. And so had we thought harder about uh, some of the arguments that had been made uh, in the fall of 2002, that, uh, the, that, the, um, um, that the operation would largely pay for itself was one argument that was made. Um, well, obviously, and that's just a financial argument. That's not a strategic or a cost and treasure and blood. Uh, yeah, I mean, it feels like this was the defining, maybe the defining decision of our generation in terms of uh, foreign policy, but may, am I overemphasizing that? I think we are going to be dealing with the consequences of it for a generation. I think we're dealing with the consequences of it today with ISIL with a dramatic instability throughout the Middle East. Um, and uh, there is no doubt that we'll be paying the consequences of this for a long time, you know, dealing, for, dealing with the consequences of this for a long time. So did this, uh, what, you being a guy who tortures himself, I know, <laughs> uh, uh, did, how, did this weigh on you? It still does. Yeah, Definitely. Definitely. I mean, look, I don't want to overstate my role in this thing. I mean, I, I you know, um, so I, I, I don't, this is not, a, right. I don't want it to be an aggrandizing thing. I just, I think the important thing, and I believe this now in my bones and I walk in this building every day, X, is to think that you're in a unique period in this country is a mistake. This country, this building, this room that we're in right now has seen it all. To think that somehow we'd be presented with something more difficult than the things that uh, Abraham Lincoln dealt with, mm-hmm. or Woodrow Wilson, or Franklin Roosevelt, or Teddy Roosevelt, is the height of arrogance. And you have to have confidence in the institutions to work. But they're not self-executing institutions. You need the people who work in them to make them work. And they have to take the responsibilities, they have to take the assignments, and they have to go make them work. And when we shortcut that, that's a huge mistake. And you're only going to pay a price for that. The shortcut never works. And that's your process point. That's my process point. 
Yeah, I mean that's a concern because the, there's a the, there's a fundamental anti-institutional kind of mood in the country, and I think that that was evident in the campaign. Yes, and uh, so institutions are really under assault here. When they seem more important, the working institutions seem more important than ever. Yeah, and uh, but th- that's true, and I think we ought to be careful to recognize that it's never been in our history that the American people think that the institutions are great. <laughs> there's been an historic, uh, historically there's been skepticism about Washington. So we, the answer to this isn't to reinvent Washington. The answer is to make sure that the institutions work. Yeah. I, I, I guess, uh, and I've got to take a short break here, but I guess uh, what's different today is just the, the, the uh, communications environment totally. uh, in which uh, uh, these these doubts can be fueled. Uh, I mean, the, the scrutiny can come, which is important and good, but doubts can be fueled sometimes on false information and completely uh, and travel within seconds to you know millions. And it just add, and people are uh, you know seeking out those outlets that affirm their point of view, but. Well, Let's, I would just say I, I, I don't want to uh, prolong this too much, Axel, but I'd, just, I'd say uh, two things about this. One, I think it was Mark Twain who said, you know, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth gets its pants on. Um, and, and, and he didn't even have the Internet. He didn't even have the Internet yet. And maybe he did. I don't know. <laughs> um, so this is not a, a brand-new challenge, one. Two, that's not to underscore, not understate the, the challenge we face. And... We just, those of us who take comfort in the truth and facts have to be as aggressive in using the institutions uh, as others are. And things like a podcast, things like uh, using social media not to push along fake news, uh, but rather to hold uh, policymakers accountable and relying now more than ever on an independent news media. Um, None of those things is easy particularly probably the third, but it's never been more important than now. And to go, uh, to, to, to make an absurd segue, yeah. I'll say, and now a word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. So let's, you mentioned Syria. Um, I guess I want to ask a broader question that will probably lead to Syria, mm-hmm. but... Um, I want to ask you, I'll ask you at the end about what your greatest satisfactions were over the last eight years. Um, let me ask you what your greatest disappointments have been. And I assume that's one of them, the, yeah. uh, the inability to resolve what has become a, a, a major catastrophe. Yeah. Well, there's one before I get to that. Yeah, you can. Which you, is you, that you, you I should check the healthcare.gov website. Yeah, I know that was something under the torturing yourself category. I know that that was something that. Yeah. No, that was well. How? Tell me about that. Well, you know, it's interesting because the first, the uh, the first week. We're talking about the failure of the healthgov.gov. 
com site yeah. to work on the day it was inaugurated yeah. and for some time after well, so or work the, properly. So the president, I remember that at the end of the first week uh, as chief of staff, the president and I were talking and he said, look, I want to have a, let's stand up weekly meetings on you know, execution and implementation of healthcare.gov because we have first open enrollment at the end of the year. And so I want to make sure that we're on top of this. And so we did. We instituted um, at first uh, monthly and then biweekly and then weekly meetings as we approached uh, October 1. And he said at the end of every meeting, like, look, this is great, looks good. Let's just remember that if the, health, if the website doesn't work, the whole concept doesn't work. Well, it turns out he the probably didn't say it just that way. Yeah, it was pretty close. Um, and he said, uh, so turned out that the website didn't work. So I, I just, I remember that walk from my from the chief of staff's office down to the president's office. And boy, I, it seemed very short because I didn't want to get there. And there's times it can seem short, times it can seem very long. Um, but ironically, the way we are able then to pull that thing back together such that millions of people could get health care coverage the first time in their lives is ironically the flip side of that great disappointment was the satisfaction that came there from but then there's no doubt actually uh, every how day how much did it harm the effort though that just the public relations around oh yeah i think i think it i mean time will tell uh you know historians will look at that reporters have written this up i think it hurt it hurt uh, but here's what we know and this is true even since the election a couple of weeks ago where given that since then we've had some of our best days of enrollment on the site during this current open enrollment uh, session. And by the way, people can go to healthcare.gov now. It works very, very well, and they can find, in fact, most people will be able to find a plan for less than 75 bucks a month. Um, but that's a word from your sponsor. That's a word. That's a word on, on behalf of wellness and health of the American people, which yeah. happens to be coming in at dramatically under the estimates that everybody suggested it might. Dramatically, historically low healthcare uh, cost increases. How how easy? I know you were in the middle of making a point, but how hard? You know, obviously the Republicans in Congress have made this a target, and Donald Trump made it a target in his campaign, and they've all announced that repealing uh, the Affordable Care Act is going to be one of their first. Gestures. How, practically speaking, how difficult is that? The, the repeal part is a, a matter of passing legislation. The replace part, without doing the things they say they won't do, which is to uh, continue to allow, they say they'll continue to allow people with pre existing conditions to get insurance, and they'll continue to allow people under 26 to get insurance on their parents. Healthcare, and I presume there are other provisions like the lifetime caps that were abolished by for insurance by the yeah. ACA or gender Bill. discrimination, or- and of course 20, 000, 20 million people who have insurance, which yeah. who they said they will uh, transition. How how is that? It's a- hard. It's hard. I mean, the president still has it on the desk. Um, yes, on the desk, the, the little plaque you gave him that says "hard things are hard." Yes, you gave him that as I as I understand it in the context of the ACA debate. Yeah. Um, and there's a reason that it took until Barack Obama to get the kind of comprehensive affordable health care uh, coverage uh, that the Affordable Care Act represents, 
notwithstanding everybody since Teddy Roosevelt trying because it's hard. And so you're right, the replace part is hard. And I guess I'd say two things about that. One, and this was the point I was making a minute ago, notwithstanding how hard Republicans have made this and notwithstanding um, the fact that it's become kind of uh, mischaracterized, people want health care. <laughs> 23 million people, maybe even as many as 24 now, uh, have health care coverage under the Affordable Care Act that they did not have before. It's a big deal. And nobody forced that on them. These are 24 million people who went out and sought it and got it because they want the peace of mind that comes with it. And the next government needs to keep that in mind because people have a reliance interest now and have a basic interest in that kind of coverage. So hard things are hard. And the American people have an expectation that they'll get coverage. And by the way, get coverage at rates in the main that dramatically dramatically are lower than people estimated. The last thing I'll say about this act is, yeah, it's going to be hard, be easy to repeal, I think, but it's not going to be easy to repeal without creating an awful lot of instability in the marketplace. Because not, remember, just, not just among uh, people who have health care under the Affordable correct. Care Act, but it will affect the whole health care what Remember what the Affordable Care Act did. It not only created affordable coverage for people who didn't have it but it dramatically it, it made much more effective and cost effective coverage for people like you right. and me the overwhelming majority of whom get their coverage through their employer their employer so it requires employers to no longer uh sorry insurance companies for you and me to no longer deny existing uh coverage for people who have a pre-existing condition mm-hmm. By the way, the numbers of people with pre-existing conditions in the country, the way it used to be defined by the insurance companies, it's overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, and so, it's overwhelmingly popular that, that, should be, that it, they should not be deprived insurance. Yeah, because that's what insurance is for. Right. Is for people who, when they get sick, they get covered. Yeah. So, yeah, it's overwhelmingly popular because it's basically common sense. Yeah. <laughs> and so... So not only if they mishandle this. They're going to affect a lot larger They're going to affect not just the 23 million people who got coverage now through the marketplaces. They're going to cover, they're going to affect the nearly uh, 200 million people who get it through their employers. And then if if you end up having the kind of instability in that market, which, by the way, over the course of the last uh, five years has seen cost increases at rates lower than at any time, year on year, than at any time since we started keeping this data right after World War II. So not only will people get more coverage, better coverage, more comprehensive coverage, but they're getting it for cheaper unless this is mishandled, mm-hmm. in which case there will be great instability, as I said, not just for the $23 million, but for everybody else too. On Syria, uh, you, you took the famous walk with the president when he pulled back from the notion of launching an airstrike on Syria around the issue of chemical weapons. And let's stipulate that the chemical weapons were removed, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, but Syria has deteriorated. And there's a longstanding debate about whether he should have armed the rebels mm-hmm. back then, no-fly zones and so on. Without responding to every one of these arguments, uh, how, how has this been mishandled? 
Look, I think the question, uh, I, I just I just tweak one thing you said, which is the question at the time um, was not whether or not to bomb. The question at the time was whether to seek congressional authorization mm-hmm. before, That's right. That's before right. so yeah. doing. Uh, and you recall that at the time— Would it have passed if you did seek it? Well, at the time, there were many Republicans and Democrats urging us to seek it and saying they would support it. Um, so I, have, I had no reason to think it wouldn't pass mm-hmm. at the time. It would be hard, but that's a good debate. And, mm-hmm. and you know, when you're thinking about institutions, right, what you said before. institutions uh-huh. being institutions and the, the country deserving to have all the institutions Would we have a board? different situation today if, you, if, if we had attacked? Would we have, before Russia came to Assad's assistance? The most important thing about that moment was uh, partly because of the way the president conducts foreign policy and has conducted foreign policy and had until that date is that that was a very credible threat of force on the table as a result of that very credible uh, threat of force against the Assad regime they not only acknowledged the fact of a chemical weapons program that until that date they had denied they both acknowledged and then gave up the chemical weapons program so the important thing about that moment is there the question is did we establish a credible threat of force and leverage that to uh, this a positive the, the, outcome? I, I hear you. This is what I was trying to avoid. I just want yeah. to get to the larger, uh, the, because just because of time. So Okay, so let me, so, so then, so your question is, so stipulate to the fact that the chemical weapons are out, which right. they are. Would it, if we had used force, would we have been better off? I'm not sure. So if the, the, the question Could is. Could we have done things differently and, and produced a different result than the country that's in shambles now yeah. and two million refugees yeah. and counting? Yeah. Yeah, and more than a million and a half internally displaced. So, um, I, I, so rather than get argumentative on it, let me say it this way. There's not been a day when I haven't thought about this, and I also, much more importantly, because he's much smarter, there's not been a day when the President of the United States hasn't thought about this since then ask himself that question he routinely gets back together with his principles committee to probe and press for new ideas he brings in critics in some cases some of our most vigorous critics brought a couple of these guys in for lunch and sat down with them very accomplished thinkers to see did they have something new or different that we should be doing that we weren't um, and so far, we've not come up with anything. It just turns out that this is a really hard problem. When you think about now, as these days are counting down, how? What are the things that you most remember? You talked about healthcare and obvi- yeah. with obvious satisfaction, yeah. as you should. Yeah. Um, what are the things that are going to be most important in your view? History will make its own judgment. When you leave here, what are you going to look back and say? These are the things that I'm proudest of about this present, this administration. Yeah. So I'll, I'll set the policy stuff aside. I mean, uh, there's stuff there that I feel really good about. But uh, the thing, you know, I was talking, uh, Kari and my wife and I were talking when, I got home, when we got home last night. And she said, you know, I'm going to miss this. And I said, well, what do you mean? And she said, I'm going to miss feeling part of something bigger. And the president's getting a lot of letters every day but he's getting a lot of letters right now that are kind of nostalgic um, one letter he read uh, to a bunch of us last night had a, a woman uh, ironically from Minneapolis um, that's in Minnesota um, sending in 
saying that she, of all the things, you know, that have happened, and she she was really happy about just getting a new job and the re- mm-hmm. economy coming back. She said all, all the things that she's appreciated in these eight years. She said the thing I was convinced of every day is that the president was going to try to do the right thing, informed by the right things, uh, and that she said he she felt that he always had her back. I'll tell you what, to be part of that um, is a cool thing. And notwithstanding some of the, you know, the crazy stuff that people say about you and write about you and write about us and write about him, which, you know, sometimes ask yourself, would you ever, you know, my dad used to say, if you wouldn't say it, if, if, if you'd say it, uh, don't say it if you wouldn't write it. And don't write it if you wouldn't sign it. And I'll tell you some of the things people say uh, to think that they would sign it, and some of them do. But nevertheless, the point is what I'll miss, Axe, uh, is coming in and working with guys like you and the friendships I've made and, and the confidence that you have when you you know go into a room. And you, everybody's trying to do the right thing. Did we always get it right? Well, God knows that. We didn't. We just talked through the Syria thing and... It's, uh, it's heartbreaking. But I'll tell you what, it's a cool, it is a really gratifying, uplifting, affirming experience to come into an office where, as uh, one diplomat said to me, the flag flies every day. I'll miss that. And how, uh, just to finish up, how do you? I had a real adjustment period when yeah. I left. It's hard. Yeah, you know, I you're bet. in the middle of everything. Yeah. Now I left you guys here. It may be that you'll be not yearning as much for the old day uh, for, for the White House yeah. when the White House isn't occupied by your friends and allies. But um, how do you adjust to life moving forward? Because yeah. you'll never have an experience like this again. So what's next for you? It's a good question. I, uh, Your wife I know, asked me to ask you. Yeah, she. I'm not surprised. Uh, I will say that I'm going to coach uh, one soccer team for one of my kids. I'm going to coach a basketball for an, basketball team for another one of my kids. I used to coach a lot. In fact, I used to coach even in the first term, but I haven't been able to coach much in this job. And uh, I see, as as you know, you and I have talked about, I see that time slipping away where I get to be with my kids in that way. Um, so I'm going to do that for sure. Got to find some way uh, to pay the bills. So. Uh, when the time is right, I'll start looking for that. And but it's going to be somewhere exactly. in the, do you think, in the service, some form of that? Boy, and, yeah, I think. I mean, scholarly service or service that, but are you I hope stay so. in this space? I hope so. You know, I harken back to what we talked about at the beginning, which is, uh, you know, we're, uh, as far as I'm concerned, on this planet to, to contribute and to serve and and I hope I get a chance to keep doing that in some way. And God knows what that will be, but God willing, it will be something. Well, uh, I'm here to thank you, not just as a great friend, but also as an American for devoting so much of yourself and asking so much of yourself and your family, frankly, yeah. um, all those coaching, all that coaching missed so yeah. that uh, to try and make this kids. better country. I don't know. I'm. I know your history as a college football player was one of pretty significant competitiveness. Yeah, it, may, I think. It, yeah. it may be the kid. You, you got to dial that back a little bit. That, I, that, think. I think that's yeah. right. Well, yeah. actually, I would look. My 
Kari made unbelievable sacrifices. Our kids made un unbelievable sacrifices. The fact that I could come here every day is a huge blessing. I've seen it. Not, you know, there's times when it's harder to execute on that blessing, but boy, to have had the chance to do this and to meet guys like you along the way, it's uh, this is all. As the president said, you know, this is a huge blessing and a huge opportunity. So, Amen. Thanks, man. Thanks, brother. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.